welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome those who are joining us online. My name's uh, Ross Gilbert. And uh, if you're new here, give you a special uh, welcome. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we're going to be studying from this morning. Uh, And if you didn't bring a Bible, then feel feel free to use your phone. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on your phone, I recommend you put one on. You go to the App Store, and there's lots of great Bible apps. Uh, a popular one is YouVersion. It's got lots of different uh, uh, Bibles, uh, translations you can choose from. And if you don't have a phone, good for you. I mean, you might be the next Unabomber, but good for you. That's, that's, uh, you've shown a lot of restraint. So. Uh, but before we get into a message, let's, let's open up a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are uh, in awe of your love for us. As our, as our worship time through song was, was displaying this idea of we tremble at the thought that your love for us is always there. That your passion for us, your care for us, your, your ready to come to our aid and our rescue is always there. And so we thank you, Jesus. And so right now, I need that. I need your rescue because I'm about to speak and uh, convey your truth, your words. And I dare not do that on my own. And so, Lord Jesus, would you be the teacher through me and convey a message that is filled with your life, filled with your hope, filled with your strength, filled with your grace, because we need that in this world. And so I'm looking forward to what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who are new here to New Life, uh, we're kind of working our way through 2 Corinthians, going verse by verse through the passage. And uh, Corinthians was, uh, or the church in Corinth was an ancient city. It's still around today, but it's in what we know is to be Greece today. Uh, but it's been around for thousands of years. And what we call 2 Corinthians is actually Paul's fourth letter to the church of Corinth. Uh, it gets a little confusing here, but the first letter, 1 Corinthians, is not actually his first letter. It's actually his second letter. So he wrote a first letter, then he wrote a second letter we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, The first one was lost to time. We don't have it anymore. Uh, Then he wrote a third letter, and that one was also lost to time. Uh, And then now we have the fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. I know it's a little confusing. We need a chart. But, um, But it matters. It does matter, that little bit of information, because the third and fourth letters are so connected. They're, they're very much intertwined. The, the third letter that was lost to history, Paul wrote a letter that was, was harsh or a severe letter, it's called. Uh, he, was, he was critical or he was attacking some of the things that they were struggling with in Corinth, specifically that was personal between him and the church because Paul had a group of people who were opposing him. And so he was trying to address that. And it, it really ran the risk of destroying the relationship between him and Corinth. And, and why that was so significant was because Paul was the one who planted the church in Corinth. We can read about that in Acts chapter 18. It was him. He went there for the first time to present the gospel. And so planting this church, this church meant a lot to him. There was a relationship there. And they ran the risk of conflict. 
And yet he was still willing to risk that because of his love for him. Now, some scholars would believe that the the section we're in now, chapters 10 to 13, the end of the book, is really that severe letter, that third letter. And they believe that that the first uh, nine chapters is actually that second Corinthians or the fourth letter, and then the, the 10 to 13 is appended. Think about an email, right? When you send, you reply to an email, the previous email is at the bottom. That's sort of how they were kind of, of looking at it. And I mean, that could be the case, but they're just speculating on that one. But I'm, I'm on the side of the scholars who would say that, no, this is all one letter. And I think the, the way it's written and the context of it would kind of support all that. Um, but it's important to understand all this context. And, and, and the reason for that is the letters that we're studying here in the New Testament, what, what's called epistles, that's the, the Greek word for letters, these epistles, these letters were not actually written to you and I. They were written to a group of people that, that existed 2,000 years before Al Gore invented the internet. And, and so how, how does that apply to us? What is that, how does that connect to you and I? And, and so it's, it, it matters because the, the beauty is the word of, of God's truth never goes out of style. That's, that's why wisdom is often portrayed as honey. You know, honey never goes bad. Doesn't matter how old it is, it's always good. And that's the same thing with God's truth. His word never changes. It never goes out of style. The, the thing for us, though, is that we have to understand how, how to apply something that was written 2,000 years ago to another group of people. How does that apply to you and I today? And, and the way we do that is we have to first start with understanding how did that initial group understand the letter? What was, what was going on in their life? What was the context? What was happening? And if we could start there and understand how would these, these church in, this church in Corinth, how would they have understood the letter and how they would have applied it, then we can take that and apply it to you and I. So it's really important for us to kind of, kind of put us in their shoes or in this case, their sandals and kind of look at the world in their, from their perspective as, as best we can. Because uh, if we don't, what ends up happening is, is we run the risk of taking scripture and uh, twisting it and applying it in any way we want that fits us. And Peter the apostle warned us against that, right? In, in 2 Peter, he says that no part of scripture is meant for personal interpretation. Meaning that Norm can't just sit there, well, I think the verse means this for me. And Ian says, well, no, I think the verse means this for me. And we're all, we're all in accordance. We're all in agreement. It doesn't work that way because we're not the arbiters, we're not the authority of God's truth. We're under his authority. Does that make sense? So it's important for us to understand the word for what it really means. And in this third and final section of 2 Corinthians, Paul's now going to address these critics. He's going to address what they've been saying about him. And so that's what we need to understand. That's the, the lens in which we have to view all this. Now, we don't know exactly what they were saying, I mean, there's no letter that was recorded throughout, you know, the antiquity and through time. But we can make, I think, an educated guess based on a couple things. One, based on what Paul's response is, because he's addressing the attacks, I believe. But the other thing I think we can understand is, is what was the opposition? What was the conflict that Paul would often face within the other churches? Because there was a consistency to what he was facing. And so what basically happened is, is Paul would come to a church and he would plant the church. Often he was the first one there. Very rarely, if ever, he built off of another ministry. He was the the sharp edge of the spear, so to speak. He was going in, planting new churches. And what would happen is eventually he would leave and move to another city, another place to go and share the gospel, at which point others would come in. And and these others were called Judaizers. We get that word from Galatians. 
And basically, a Judaizer is one who lives like the Jews. And what these Judaizers doing is they would come in and they would begin to wreak havoc within the church that Paul had just planted. See, what they would do is they would take the beauty of the new covenant. They would take the beauty of God's grace and they would twist it. Now, they wouldn't come out and deny it. They couldn't do that outright because the reality is these people had already accepted Jesus. So they did what, what's most powerful, put a little bit of a twist on it, a little bit of deception to, to spoil the whole thing. So here's what I mean by that. They didn't come in denying that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They didn't deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They accepted that fact. And that was important because, again, these, these people in the church, they've already made that decision. They've already kind of weighed, weighed out what Paul had said, and they, they bought into it. They agreed with it. So they're not coming and denying that. They don't deny that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose three days later. They don't deny that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice for our sins. They would agree with all that. In essence, we could say that they would say, yes, we are taught, they were teaching and they would agree with that we are saved by grace through faith. No problems there. So far, so good. But then comes the twist. And again, this is what's so powerful. That little bit of a twist is, is, is what makes it a deception. And deception is so difficult to spot because deception is a lie that's wrapped up in truth. Meaning it, it looks good at parts or maybe even looks good on the surface. But when you begin to peel back the layers and when you begin to get to the core, that's when you discover the lie that's rotting the whole thing. And the lie that these Judaizers would say is that essentially is, oh, now that you're saved, now that you've accepted this grace, you guys who are Gentiles, the non-Jews, now that you're saved, what you need to do now is, is you, need to, you need to get better. You need to work on yourself now. Now, you know, you had the starting point here, but now it's your job to kind of improve things as you go. And you got to clean up your act, you know, straighten out. And here's how you can do it. We've got the law. We've got the law of Moses. And that's why Paul called them the Judaizers, because they were trying to get these Gentiles, these Gentile believers now to live like the Jews. And so that meant now you have to follow these 613 commands which included the Ten Commandments, all the, the commands from Moses in the Old Testament. So that meant practicing the Jewish feasts. It meant following the Sabbath rules. It, it meant the men had to be circumcised. So there's a big debate about that. And they were challenging all that. And they were trying to get these new Gentile believers to become Jews. And I, and I believe that's the case, that this is what they were doing. Because earlier in this, this book, in, in chapter 3, in this letter, Paul had to address that. He had to talk about how this law, this Mosaic covenant, is a ministry of death and condemnation. But we have a new covenant, a different covenant, the new covenant which is under grace, which offers us life and righteousness. And so that was, that was the battle going on. And to, to make their case, these Judaizers, what they would do is they would attack the credibility of Paul. They would, they would sort of um, try to undermine him to plant seeds of doubt. And say, well, he's, he's an apostle, but... Not really. You know, he's an apostle with an asterisk, right? He's, he's, he's sort of like, he's like Taco Bell. It's not really food, right? So it's, that's sort of what Paul is. He's the Taco Bell of apostles. And, and the reason is because if you can plant seeds of doubt in the messenger, you've undermined the message, and, but you never had to actually point out the faults of the message. And we see that today. Think about all the political debates and all the personal attacks that go on. No one argues about the ideas because they don't want to challenge those ideas. But if you can undermine the messenger, 
then it doesn't matter what message you have to share. So let's put ourselves now in the sandals of these, these Corinthians, these, these young, immature followers of Jesus. Not young in age, not immaturity in terms of their adulthood, but immature and young in their faith. So not only do they not know very much about following Jesus, they don't know very much about worshiping this God named Yahweh, named Jehovah. That's, that's completely foreign to them. Because again, as a, as a Gentile, they would have grown up worshiping gods like Zeus and, and Ares and, and, uh, and Venus and so forth. Those were the gods that they would worship, and they would have knowledge of that and, and what it meant to worship and how to worship at those temples. But this, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's a new, new game altogether. And so, so they're sincere in their desire to worship and obey. And the Judaizers know that, and they're going to play off of that. And so now along come these, these men, these Judaizers, these, these experts, right? I mean, they've spent their entire lives worshiping this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're born Jews. They've studied his holy scriptures. They have it memorized. They can quote things just on command. They know all the stories and, and, and the prophets and the, and the oracles and, the, and what God has done. And so they come full of all this wisdom and this knowledge and this confidence and these articulate words, and, and, and very polished, quoting the scriptures, and begin to subtly jab at the Apostle Paul. Yes, Jesus was the Messiah. Yes, you're forgiven. And yes, one day you'll be with him in glory. That's, that's true. But, um, but you want to obey him, right? You want to you please him, right? You want to make sure that you're, you're okay with him, right? Well, let me, let me tell you how to do it. Here's, here's the commands. And they start giving them a list of do's and don'ts. Make sure you do this. And you do it when, time, time to do it now. And when not to do it. And not to do these things over here. And all these, these rules and all these performance standards begin to be placed on you. But, but being young in your faith, what are you to do? I mean, you got these experts. Well-spoken, quoting scripture, these scholars, it sounds pretty good. See, that situation is not hard for me to imagine because 2,000 years later, it's still happening. It's still going on today where a person, they're, they're saved. They, they place their faith in Jesus Christ to receive this gift. And it's a gift, guys. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't work for it. It was given to you and I freely. All that God says is, will you receive this gift? And so we receive the gift free of charge. Come to Jesus just as you are. And we know at this point, Jesus loves me. And that's beautiful because when you see a believer who just, Jesus loves me, that's it. That's all that matters to them. And they're excited in their faith and they're passionate about it and everything changed. They're pure, they're accepted and acceptable for the first time in their lives. And so in response to this, this love that God's bestowed upon them, they naturally want to love him back and love others. No one has to tell them. They just want to do it. It's what drives them naturally. And now the scholars come. Now the experts come along and they say, well, now here's what you can do to please God. Here's a list of rules. Here's, here's what you need. You need to dress this way. You need to make sure you, you say these things and don't say these things. Make sure you listen to this kind of music and not that kind of music. These are now the political views that are acceptable, and these are the political views that are unacceptable. 
These are the parties that you, you, uh, you support. These are the ones you do not. This is the right way of worship. This is the wrong way of worship. Go to these places, but don't go to these places. Drink these drinks, but don't eat these food. We have all these rules now, these standards, these expectations. And what are these young, immature believers to think when you have these scholars, these experts who are confident in what they're saying do? Please understand, I'm not saying that we, we need to reject these people just because, you know, they're pastors and they have all these seminary degrees and so forth. I'm not saying we reject authority. I'm not saying we reject the teachers because the reality is God has given to the church the gift of teachers, pastors. It's a gift. It's important that God has appointed teachers for a reason, that we would teach the word of God to the church. So they play a role, a critical role, a God-given role, and you can't remove that role. What I am saying, though, is that we need to be like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17. See, these Bereans, when they heard the apostle Paul preaching and, and, and speaking to them, they said, okay, Paul, this sounds interesting. Sounds, sounds intriguing, but I'm not going to accept it just because you said it. I'm going to go back to my scriptures, and I'm going to verify it to make sure it's legit. And that's what we need to do. You see, don't, don't accept it just because I say it, right? Maybe if Robin says it, that's different. But if I say it, don't just accept it, right? It does not matter how eloquent someone is. It doesn't matter how big of a church they have. It doesn't matter how big of a platform they have. That's not why you accept it. It doesn't matter how many degrees and how long they studied the word of God. That's not the criteria. You know what the criteria to accept it is? Does it agree with the whole counsel of God? So you take what you hear and go, well, let's see, does it actually line up? Not just in this passage that we're studying, but let's compare it to other passages and make sure the whole counsel lines up because that's the beauty of God's word. It's in agreement with itself. And so that's how we accept it. So that's what we need to understand. Coming into this passage now, understanding the conflict that was going on, and Paul now is going to begin to address these critics. All right, that's our introduction. Let's jump into the passage now. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, you are looking at things as though they are outwardly. He's talking again to the church in Corinth. That's who he's addressing first. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone, has con if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself. Just as he is Christ, so also are we. So again, these, these experts, these Judaizers, they were coming in. Well, we know Jesus, and this is what Jesus wants. Follow these laws. And Paul's answer is, well, you know, we also know Jesus. We also belong to Jesus. So don't just immediately dismiss us for this. But his warning to them is saying, you're looking at things externally. You're looking things on the outside. And that's how the world judges things, right? The world judges one another based on the outward appearance, based on the accomplishments, based on what that person looks like. And that's what matters. I love the, the, the Batman movies. Anyone else love the Batman movies? I love that Michael Pelesha came dressed as Batman, by the way. That's... that's uh, I, I, I just I think they're so great. In fact, I, I love every one of them. I'm not saying they're all good, looking at you, George Clooney. Uh, but I love the character. I love the character enough to think that, that I just love every, every movie. So I'm a sucker for Batman movies. 
But but I, I got to say the Christopher Nolan movies are next level. And, um, and in that first movie, though, there is a line that Christopher Nolan has a couple of characters repeat. So it's kind of significant in the story, but I disagree with him whole entirely. So, so the line is, it's not what you do. Oh, I am underneath, but what you do. That's my Christian Bale impersonation. For those that didn't understand, oh, thank you. I won't do my Bane because it's not very good. But, but um, basically, yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's not who I am underneath that matters, but what I do. And every time I see this, that's a lie. It's important sometimes for us to talk back to the TV, by the way. Because the TV is often telling you lies. And that's not true. It's, it does matter. It's more important, in fact, who you are underneath than what you do. And the reason is because who you are underneath will determine what you do. Jesus put it this way. Turn, turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. We'll come back to, to 2 Corinthians. But in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20, listen to what Jesus tells us. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes the evil thoughts, the murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. See, the, the issue there that they're struggling with is that the the, 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 the Jews here, the Pharisees are all about the law and the law says you gotta wash your hands in order to be clean. And, and Jesus is saying, no, it's not the external, it's the internal. It's out of our heart comes all these sins. So is that true? Well, as evidence, I'd ask you to consider the online trolls. Consider all the, the, the stuff that happens on Twitter and the, all the other social media sites. See, I believe that social media doesn't make anyone behave poorly. It's just safe for them to do so. It's safe for them to finally be themselves. Because the idea there is they believe they're anonymous. They believe that I can say these things, I can do these things, I can act in this way, because it's really difficult for it to get traced back to me. Especially when you can set up these anonymous accounts. And so they begin to say and do and act in certain ways. And really what we're seeing there is their heart because the mask has dropped. They're no longer hiding them true, their true selves. And so what we see is that, that anger and that vitriol. We see the cheating, the lying, the scheming. We see the evilness of man's heart, which lines up with what God said to the prophet Jeremiah. You don't have to turn to it, but in Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet there says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Scheming, it's a liar, it's a cheat, and it's desperately sick. The King James says it's desperately wicked. The NIV says it is beyond cure. It's terminal. There's no redeeming the heart of man. There's no, no amount of exercises, no amount of, of good works, of behavior, of exercise, training, and this and that, that can fix the heart of man. The heart of man is deceitful. It is wicked. It is broken. And that's why this world is broken. That's why we see so much hate, so much anger, so much vitriol in this world. 
the shouting and the screaming. And again, I believe that social media just allows it to come out. That's why it's so important that God gives us a new heart. You see, if God only forgave us, he'd forgive the, he'd forgive the outward behavior. He'd forgive the yelling and the scream, but it wouldn't change who I am. So thank God, what did he do? He gives us a new heart. He gives us a, a, new, a new spirit. Remember in, in 2 Corinthians, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We studied this a few months ago. In verse 16, Paul writes, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Right? We used to, we used to regard one another based on the outside, based on the appearance. How do they look? How tall are they? How good looking are they? What decisions do they make? That's how we would regard one another, based on the behavior and the performance. But he says, no longer. We used to even judge Jesus that way. Well, how are we to regard others now? Verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, if any man is saved, that's it. That's, all, that's the only requirement that you've accepted, received this gift of God. If you have done that, if you are in Christ, he is, present tense, right now, a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. That old spirit was crucified and buried with Jesus. It's gone. The old heart has been replaced. Salvation was heart surgery. Where you got a new heart. You're a new man now. Behold, the new has already come. That's who you are. And that's how we regard one another. But it's easy to regard others on the outside. I've experienced this. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me that, that I, would, I, would hear, I would hear other ministry leaders and what they would say about me was, was when I started going into counseling and, and they felt threatened by me as a counselor. I don't know why they felt threatened, but they felt threatened by me. And they would say things, oh, that counselor, oh, that's the engineer, right? Because that's what I was before I was a counselor. And, and it was a subtle way to just undermine what I was doing. I had a pastor once come to me and say, you know, when my, I meet with them for a little bit and when they're in trouble, I send them to get professional counseling. Not to me, no, no, professional counseling. What are they doing? Slowly undermining my credibility. It doesn't matter what I teach. It doesn't matter about the impact I've had on people's lives, but I'm not qualified because I used to be an engineer. Well, you now you know what's interesting? Now I'm a pastor. You know what they say? Oh, that's the church where the pastor's the counselor? It's amazing. I've graduated. I'm no longer just an engineer. <laughs> I'm now just a counselor. But again, it's a subtle way to say he's not really qualified, you know, because he didn't go to seminary. He's not really qualified, you know, because he didn't take all the right courses. And you know what my argument back is? Look what Jesus has done. Look at the product of what Jesus has done. That's what matters. And that's essentially what they're doing to Paul. They're undermining his authority, looking at the external, looking at the, 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 the degrees and everything around it, not acknowledging the impact that God's doing through the Apostle Paul. All right, let's go back to chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. He continues, for even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. 
for I do not wish to seem as though I were terrifying you by my letters. What we see here is a great example of leadership. Good leaders always build each other up. They always build others up. I've read a lot of books on leadership and, and, and listened to podcasts, and I think the, the best uh, characteristic that I've heard about leaders, and there's, there's many, there's many, but the one I love the most, uh, this description is that when things are going well, what a leader does is he looks out the window at those people who he's leading, and he, he praises them for what's happening because he's recognizing that they're doing well, and that's why it's going well. But when things fail, they look in the mirror and they say, well, what am I not doing well? Versus bad leaders. What do bad leaders do? When things are going well, what do they do? Look in the mirror. What a great leader I am. And then when things are going poorly, they look out the window and they say, what are you doing wrong? And they blame everyone else. And you see, bad leaders, what they're doing is they're using their people. They're using those things around them as a platform for themselves. They're stepping on them. They're using them. They're manipulating them. They're controlling them simply so they can build up their own fame, their own glory, their own worth, their own value, uh, material success. That's what they're after. And so they're, they're controlling people. People are a means to an end. But good leaders, they see the value in these people. And they're not on top of them. They're not over them. They're underneath them, lifting them up. They're underneath them, encouraging them, supporting them. And I think we can learn from Paul in this sense that even in the harsh, severe things he was saying to them, he wasn't doing it to lift himself up, to glorify himself, to even protect his own control. He was protecting them. Because the reality is, if they were going to go down this path, they were going to, to lead uh, towards error, towards the bondage. And again, the law is a ministry of death and condemnation, he wrote. That's what he was protecting them against. And he was willing to confront them over it out of love, not for his own glory, not for his own gain. And we can all learn from that because the reality is we're all leaders. Some of you have formal leadership roles, right? Uh, maybe as a husband, as a, as a parent, maybe you're a supervisor or a manager, a team leader. So you might have a formal role in this sense. But the reality is we all lead because people will follow you. People are watching you, especially the world. They're looking to you and I to, to discover who is this Jesus? What's he really like? Is he actually worth following? And so we're all leaders. And so what we can do is we can learn to, to focus on them. Make sure they're doing well. And that's why Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another. That's what good leaders do. That's what Jesus did. Remember how he served the disciples. Remember how he laid down his life for the church. And so may that be our goal. Following the example of Paul, following the example of Jesus, building up rather than tearing down. So again, we see the heart of Paul. All right, verse 10 now, we can see the accusation that Paul's going to address head on by his critics. So in verse 10, they say, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. And you know what? They might not have been wrong. They might have been right. That, that Paul, I, I would wager that Paul was not elegant or a charismatic speaker like Apollos. And Apollos was a big deal in the church in Corinth, 
right? I mean, in that first letter to, or the second, but the first Corinthians, we read about how they, they followed Paulos and others followed Paul and others followed Peter and then the non-denominational, we followed Jesus. And, and so they had all these, these, these factions. And so Apollos was a big deal there and he was an eloquent speaker. He would get up and he'd captivate a room. That was not Paul. He wasn't very eloquent. He wasn't naturally gifted in his speaking. He probably wasn't the strong natural leader of Peter. He probably, he probably didn't just command the room whenever he walked into it. And everyone goes, oh, Paul's here. He probably was, he was a little man. He was probably unassuming. Probably wasn't the encourager that Barnabas was. And I would wager he probably wasn't even as compassionate as the Apostle John. He probably was more of an unassuming kind of guy. Again, no one looked at him and says, well, that's the guy. And so they, they use this to accuse Paul, essentially saying that Paul is this, these online trolls, these, these keyboard warriors, right? He writes a big letter and the letter is full of bluster and everything. But if you ever challenged him, if you've ever got up in his face, he would quickly back down. And that's how you know it's not true. So that's why you can dismiss it. Again, not attacking what Paul's saying, not debating the ideas of it, undermining the character to dismiss the message. In essence, what they're doing is they're saying that Paul is inauthentic. You know what? From the Judaizer side, in terms of strategy, that is probably the most effective line of attack you can do. You see, when a leader is inauthentic, they will lose their people. See, leadership is all about influence. And influence is, is by permission. You earn that influence. People offer you that, that trust in you. And so it's by permission that leaders influence others. But when a leader's inauthentic, if that's the charge against them, what happens to their following? They remove permission. They remove the trust. Because what they see that it's not real. And so then what the leader has, the only thing they have left now is control. They power up. They try to use their authority. And they try and beat others up. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to lose, they're trying to accuse Paul of his, of his influence by saying he's inauthentic. John Eldridge, he, um, he calls these people who are inauthentic, he calls them posers. There's a word from the 90s that didn't quite survive. <laughs> uh, John Lynch likes to use the word bluff. People are bluffing. Many, many others, they, they use this, this picture of wearing a mask, right? What you see on the outside is not what you see on the inside. That's, that's essentially what's, what's happening. The, the Bible, I think, would use the illustration of the Garden of Eden and would talk about the fig leaf that Adam and Eve hid behind. See, all of that is examples of, of living in an inauthentic way. You're posing, you're, you're, you're pretending to be something you're not. You're bluffing, hoping that no one catches on. And, and you've probably seen it in others, right? Because very rarely do we see it in ourselves. We may know it's not authentic, but we don't realize how poorly we're coming off. We think the mask is working. We think the, the accent, the bluff, the, 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 the little shaping of the truth is working, and we're getting away with it. So why would anyone do this, though? Why would we live in an inauthentic way, knowing the, the cost to it? Well, I think it's because it's we're afraid of rejection. 
Again, it goes all the way back to that garden. That's the, the first time that man felt the need to live in an inauthentic way, where Adam and Eve sewed together those fig leaves, not to hide from God, to hide from each other. They couldn't let the other see who they really are because they were afraid if you did see me for who I am, you wouldn't want me. You would reject me. So we want people to, feel, to think better of us. So we got to hide our, our failures. We hide our shame. We hide our insecurities. Because if you knew the real me, you wouldn't want nothing to do with me. And so we pretend to be, to be better than what we really are. We, we often tell stories where we make ourselves the hero, where I did this and I did that to, to, to hopefully come across better. But the reality is when you're living in an inauthentic way, you are desperate for love. You are desperate for, for attention and affection. And so you become clingy. You become desperate. You begin to hang on to people and you're looking for people to love on you. But you become untrustworthy because you've lost all self-awareness. You don't realize how you're coming across. Sort of like when you become nose blind to your body odor, also known as teenagers. I'm kidding. Um, but when you become nose blind to you don't realize how you smell, that's what it's like to be inauthentic. You, you don't realize how poorly you're coming off. You see, the, the reality is, for me, when I see people who are inauthentic, I want no part of that because that inauthenticity is getting in the way of who you really are, and that's who I'm interested in. But instead of experiencing the, the love from others, all you're doing is you're following the flesh. You're living a lie, and the odor that comes off of that is the result of the flesh, and the outcome of the flesh is always death. And it just doesn't smell right. It doesn't look right. And so, so what ends up happening is, is everyone around you sees it and they take a step back because I don't, I don't trust what I see. I don't trust what I hear. And you know what, ironically, what that does is that person who's acting inauthentically. Why? Because they want to be loved. They see the step back and what do they do? I got to try harder. Maybe if I polish up the mask more. Maybe if I, I, I stick out my chest more. Maybe if I tell this story. Maybe if I'm a little bit funny over here. Maybe, maybe if I sound religious. Maybe if I sound spiritual. Say the right things that's accepted. Maybe then I'll be okay. But it comes off even worse. So people take another step back. Because it's, we're, we don't trust it. It's guarded. And so the person's getting more and more, more desperate. But maybe here's the worst thing. If any love does come through, if anyone does love in return, you know where that love goes? It goes to the mask. It goes to the bluff. Because in their mind, that's what the person's loving. They're loving the, the, the act I'm putting on. They're loving the mask that I'm not wearing. But they don't really love me. And so whatever love does come never actually hits your heart. And you're still quenched for a thirst. You're still, or so you're not, you haven't quenched that thirst. You're still thirsty for love. You're still, still thirsty for acceptance. So it's not working. And then the fear, well, what if I ever stop performing? What if I ever stop being the funny person or, or the person that, that, that talks a lot or the person that's active or the person that's always smiling or encouraging? What if I ever just am quiet? What if I ever tell someone I'm struggling? 
and I'm not doing okay? What if I'm ever just me? Will I be all right? That's the fear. And what ends up happening now is this bluff, this posing, these masks, they become my master. And I'm in bondage to them. Well, Paul's an answer for all this. And in, in a few verses, he's going to answer his critics head on. But he's got to answer this charge about his own inauthenticity. And so he's going to speak directly to these Corinthians in verse 11. And what he's going to offer up to them is his integrity. And that's the answer to it. So verse 11, he says this, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. It's, it's sort of like this, this, what James said, right? Talking about faith. He says, well, you show me your faith without works and I'll show you my works with my faith. Because it does matter what you do. But what you do is the product of who you are. That's what it means to live a life of integrity. Now, there's a lot of great definitions of integrity out there that you can look up, but, but the one that I like is, is one that is living consistently regardless of the circumstances. That's what it means to be a person of integrity. And the picture that I like of that, the word picture of that is a mountain, right? You think about a giant mountain, huge, enormous rock. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world, right? Pandemic, no pandemic, government, no government, chaos, anarchy, storms, droughts, you know, snow, earthquakes even, global warming. The mountain never moves. That's what integrity is. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world around us. It doesn't matter about the circumstances that we're facing. We don't change because we're living out of our heart. We're living from who we really are. And there's so many benefits to this. You see, you've got nothing to hide at this point because you're hiding nothing. I've, I've heard this illustration that, that the, um, the person who's most free is the person whose dirty laundry was aired on the six o'clock news the night before. Got nothing to hide now. You know everything about me. My whole life's been laid naked before you. What, what do you think? What are you going to do now? They have nothing to hide. It's sort of like when, uh, when the police finally capture a guilty person who's been on the land, been on the run, and maybe hiding even in plain sight. And when they're finally arrested, they ought, the, the investigators comment, and they're actually looking for this, is when they, they finally begin to, to rest. And you'll see they'll get into the interview room and they'll just take a little nap. And, and the reason for that nap is because they've been living with anxiety, waiting to be caught. And when they're caught, they're found out. <sighs> you got nothing left to hide anymore. And so the, the, the freedom that comes when you have nothing to hide because you've been living in authentic integrity. You have peace, with, peace within your soul. You know, it's, it is hard incredibly hard sometimes to do the right thing. Amen? That's why we often don't do it, because we opt for the easy. We opt for the convenient. So it is hard to do the right thing. But you know what's not hard? Living with yourself when you've done the right thing. You know what is hard? Living with yourself when you compromise, when you fail to do the right thing, 
And so there's peace, an inner peace. There's confidence. And I think that confidence comes because in order for you to be authentic, you've had to come to a place of accepting yourself. And, and if you need permission, if you need permission to accept yourself as you are today with all your flaws and your shortcomings, with all the things you have to improve and fix and work and so forth, all that baggage you still carry, if you need permission, here it is. God accepts you. Right, all right, right now, today. And unless you have higher standards than God, or unless you believe that Jesus didn't do enough, you have permission to accept yourself. I dare say you'd be obedient in accepting yourself. There's freedom in that because now you can actually love yourself. And that loving yourself gives you confidence to just be yourself. You have nothing to prove. Oh, that's beautiful. I don't have to do extra. I don't have to be extra. I don't have to accomplish more. I don't have to earn anything from you. I just get to be me. And that consistency now begins to flow. And that life of integrity begins to come out. And now people know what to expect. People know, I know Terry. And I see Terry consistently being Terry. And I see Christ in Terry over and over and over again. So when I go to Terry with something, I know what to expect. I'm going to get Christ in Terry. And he's going to comment about my comments about fishermen. And so I know that. And it's okay. And, and so there's a consistency. And it's beautiful. And so it's we can now trust people because we become less guarded around them. And so others can experience the love of Christ through you to them because they trust you. So there's great benefits from living a life of integrity, of fighting with integrity. And so the question then is, how do we live with that consistency? How do we live with integrity? Well, I'll tell you first how it doesn't come about. It doesn't come about by doing more. It doesn't come about by trying harder, by pulling up your bootstraps, getting serious about this, this life and, and acting more holy. That's not it. I promise you. It's actually simpler than that. See, the, the, the problem with all those other methods is it puts you at the center of it. It's all based on you and what you're doing. And it's just another mask. And it might be the worst mask out there because it's religion. It's, it's faux spiritual, right? It's fake. It's not the real thing. And so we're hiding behind just a polished mask, a good-looking mask. That's not it. We want to throw the masks aside. And what we now want to do is we, instead, we want to live out of this new heart where Jesus has taken up permanent residence. That's how we live. Remember when we were studying Ephesians? And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul was, was hammering home the truth of who we are in Jesus and all that Jesus has done and how he's transformed us and, and how we're been raised up and seated with him and we're new people now. And then we get to chapter four and he's going to spend these next three chapters applying it. How do we now live? Well, listen to what he says. The very first thing he tells us when he gets into the section Chapter four, verse one, I therefore, the prisoner Lord, entreat you to walk. I urge you, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live as who you are. Later on, he's going to say, walk as children of light because that is what you are. 
See, I don't have to now act in a way to become something. I already am. I just need to be it. And so Christ in me, as his new creation, I get to live this way. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you see the integrity? Do you see the consistency? And that's who Jesus is in you. That's what Jesus in you is wanting to do. So if we, we jump ahead in the same chapter to verse 20, he goes on, he says, but you do not learn Christ in this way, comparing against the Gentiles, the, the unbelievers. He says, no, we learn Jesus. We trust in Jesus in a different way. Verse 21, if indeed you've heard of him, if indeed you've accepted him, if he lives inside of you, You've been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, wearing masks, bluffing, pretending, posing, hiding, manipulating, using others, trying to get life from other people, you've laid aside the old self. You're no longer the old sinner. You've put him in the grave when he was crucified with Jesus, which was being corrupted in accordance with lust of deceit, and you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, of your mind, you've put on the new self. You're already good. Norm, let the righteousness of Jesus shine through you. That's what we want. That's what we need. Isn't that beautiful? That purity, that new self that you already have, because it's been created in the likeness of God, in righteousness, in holiness, and that's the truth. That's how we live lives of integrity. Remembering who we are in Jesus. Remembering who Jesus is in us. And trusting that. And if people reject you, because they will, I promise you, that will happen. But it's okay. Because you're a mountain. Your righteousness is solid. Your identity is solid. And no matter what's happening around you, the storms, the criticism, the attacks, cannot penetrate that mountain who you are in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. This glory of the new covenant, this glory of grace, this glory of the work of the cross, how you have made us into someone new. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, we would trust in this now, that we would experience your life of grace, that we would be people of integrity, that we would live authentically, and we wouldn't fall into the trap and the deception that we need to bluff. We need to pretend. We don't have to hide anymore. Because all it does is obscure your glory. So thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.